So we're going to read from Psalm 49, Psalm 49, and we're going to read verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to take a reading in Hebrews. First of all, Psalm 49, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 49. It's entitled, To the Choir Master, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And now I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews and chapter 2. We'll start reading there at verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We're studying this afternoon Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. And before we study that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, Father, that our hearts will be made ready to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up after Jesus had been presented in the temple, after the words of Simeon and Anna, the prophetess, were spoken concerning him. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Hear the word of God. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. 
Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Amen. And God bless his word to us. The Gospels present to us the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. A man died on a cross at Calvary, executed by the Romans at the prompting of the Jewish priesthood. A man, and if he was truly human, well then, a man grows from infancy. He was truly a baby, then he was truly a boy, then he grew into truly manhood. And Luke is basically giving us all the evidence we need to understand that in the next part of his gospel, when Jesus appears and commences his public ministry, this amazing ministry of miraculous power, authoritative teaching, healings, exorcisms, etc., etc., All of this was coming to us through someone who is truly human. We often, as Christians, can make the mistake of forgetting that Jesus was and is. He remains truly human. His true humanity was crucified. His true humanity was laid dead in the grave. And his true humanity was resurrected. And if at this point you're realising that I'm laying much emphasis on his humanity, you might also be asking yourself the question, why? What's the importance of this? Well, in Scripture, the importance of this is that God intended for a man to rule and reign at his right hand. It was humanity created to bear the image of God. It was man who was given authority. He was the firstborn. In the genealogy of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, Luke, when he traces the bloodline of Jesus, traces that bloodline all the way back to Adam and at the last verse or verse 38 of chapter 3, the son of Adam, the son of God. The what-if scenario that the Bible presents us with, and it's, it's 
In many ways, an absolutely pointless what-if to talk about it, but it needs to be understood. The what-if scenario is that if Adam did not fall into sin, Adam would have been crowned, as it were, the Son of God, and continued to exercise his authority in the name of God over God's creation, he being the man who was called the Son of God, bearing the image of God, ruling in the name of God. He fell, as God had ordained, for God had also ordained that he would reveal himself and reveal his grace through sending forth his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his eternally eternally begotten Son, known to us as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, Son of David, etc., etc. God had ordained that he would reveal himself to us in this way. So, as I said, in a way... The what-if is pointless. But it's not pointless in that it helps us to understand that we who are of mankind needed a saviour who is of mankind. God intended to redeem his people. God intended to bring his people back into fellowship with himself. And God established if you want to think of it this way, the rules of engagement way back in the book of Genesis when he, speaking to Satan in the hearing of Adam and Eve, told them all that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, think about the woman. What was that woman? She was Eve. Adam called her the mother of all that live. She was truly human, a person bearing the image of God. And God had said that of her seed, in other words, a person, a man, a human bearing the image of God, of her seed would come the saviour, the serpent crusher. As we read that which we just read from the Gospel of Luke here, How is it that Luke tells us that Jesus was truly human? He's not denying that Jesus is divine, God the Son of God, God incarnate, God who took upon himself flesh. But how does he say that Jesus was not just God? Well, think of these phrases that we just read, Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. Or verse 52, Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Think of what we know of God. There is one and one only God, subsisting in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The three persons are all co-equally, co-eternally God. All of the all of the attributes of the Godhead are to be found in all the members of the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They are God, truly God. Jesus in his pre-incarnate state was pure spirit, as he taught that God is spirit, and had all of the attributes of God. 
omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent. Everywhere, all at once. Well, how can one who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent grow, become strong, be filled with wisdom, grow in wisdom, stature and favour? You see, these things can be said about the humanity of the Lord Jesus but it would be some kind of strange foolishness to use those phrases to describe divinity. God cannot grow. God cannot be filled with wisdom. God does not increase in wisdom. God does not increase in stature. God does not become strong. Why? Because God is those things. God is wisdom and filled with all wisdom and all knowledge and all understanding, and there is nothing he does not know. God is omnipotent. He is strong. He is the source of all strength. He doesn't become strong. He is. God is not a becoming being. You and I are becoming in a way. I was a baby. I became a child. I became a boy. I became an adolescent. I became a man. I'm becoming an old man. (laughs) If you you wanted to be uh, blunt, you could say, I'm on the way to becoming a corpse. Body's going to die. We're becoming. God is not becoming. God simply is. So when the Gospels use these terms to describe Jesus, they're, they're speaking to us about the humanity of Jesus. And if you think of the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, what Luke is basically saying is, that this one is truly human. This one is the seed of the woman. This one is born of woman, born under the law, as we read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He's not a visiting spirit. He's not an angel sent down who just suddenly appeared to be like man. He's not someone who in every way seemed to be human, even in the shedding of blood that was not actually human. No, born a baby, became a young man, became a man, was crucified as a man. That's the main thing that we'll get out of this, but let's um, work our way through the text and pick up upon these things as we go along. At verse 39, we read, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favour of God was upon him. I simply make the point. He is here described as a child who grows, who grows strong and is filled with wisdom. Remember this, this child is not stained with sin. He's not, his mind, for example, is not blunted or dulled by sin. And so he's filled with wisdom. The favour of God the love of God, the blessings of God, the joy of God was upon him. We continue to read verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. Now there were three feasts that every man in Israel was supposed to attend and one of them was Passover. And it was 
apparently the general practice of the people at that time that they would at least attend one feast every year. And it appears that Joseph and Mary were in the custom of turning up at the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover was an eight-day festival. And when he was 12 years old, that is Jesus, they went up according to custom. Now, in the Jewish mind, the age of 13 is a fairly significant age. It's considered to be the age when a young man is expected to think for himself, to answer to the law of God for himself, to speak in terms of his membership of the synagogue for himself. So this is an important part as a young Jewish man of Jewy, of, of Jesus growing up. So they went up according to the custom. A bunch of people from the town or from the district would have travelled up in a group. And if you were travelling on foot in a group with a whole bunch of familiar people, I mean, imagine kids on a school excursion, what do you notice? Well, you might have a 100 kids from the same year group at that school, but when they're walking from one place to the next on, to the next on a school excursion, the group divides up into subgroups. It may be that mostly the girls walk together with the other girls, mostly the boys walk together with the other boys. And then those groups might divide up, and mostly the boys who are sports-centred and competition-centred, they sort of form one particular group, and, you know, the popular girls form another particular group, and etc., etc. The bunch of people going from place to place, on foot, all familiar with one another, end up walking in not necessarily strictly divided groups, but somewhat divided groups. You've got a bunch of people from a town or district taking a 40-mile journey to Jerusalem, dividing up most likely into subgroups. A lot of women walking together, children of a certain age walking together near the women, where the women could watch over them, men walking together, etc., etc. That's the picture. They went up according to custom, verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So how could they have gone that far and not know that he was not with them? Well, think of this large group of people divided up into subgroups. He's 12 years old. He could still be walking with the small children in the sight of the women. He could be walking with the men in the sight of the men. One bunch assumes that he's somewhere else with another bunch. The other bunch makes the same opposite assumption. And so they don't necessarily notice till it's time to stop and have a meal together that he's not there with them. They left him behind for a short period of time. And when they did not find him, verse 45, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Turn around, go back. He's definitely not with us. We've gone from one end of this group to the other. We know he's not here now. It's time to go looking. Go back to Jerusalem. Go back to the city. I'm absolutely certain this would have been a tense and um, in a way fearful time for Mary and for Joseph. I remember there was a time when um, I left a child locked in a car, my youngest son. 
It wasn't summer. He wasn't getting cooked in 40-degree heat. Praise the good Lord for that. But I had not noticed that he was sound asleep in his car seat when I had rushed out the door to go to work, jumped in the car, raced off to work, and he was still in the car. Gotten to work, jumped out of the car, gotten into, gotten in the truck, driven off to do what it is that I had to do. And I got a phone call. Have you left something in your car? It was my boss. He was really enjoying the moment. Have you left something in your car? I don't think so. Really, he said, have you thought about it? I don't think so. He said, well, I'm looking through the back window of your car and I can see a little boy sitting in a car seat waving to me. And I, I, I could tell you that my face went six shades of pale. <laughs> and I could barely concentrate on a thing for a little while there. He said, don't worry, don't worry. Your wife is on her way in. We're going to open the car. I'm good at breaking into things. I didn't ask him how he got that skill. but He said, I'm good at breaking into things. I'll break into your car. We'll get him out. He'll be just fine. It was heart-wrenching. Just for a moment there. I was definitely in a bad state of mind. So they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. One day away is one day. One day back is two days. So on the third day, after three days, on the third day, kind of seems to indicate that probably later in the day, on the third day, or after three days. Now Luke's foreshadowing something there, remember? Three days, Jesus in the tomb. All assume he's gone, all assume he's dead, all those who decided to build their lives around him as being the Messiah, not understanding exactly what was happening. Three days on the third day, he arose. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. As I think about this, I can't help but think, you know, there's nothing like a good seminar. One thing that I really, really enjoy is to sit under some intensive teaching from some very good teachers. There are men who I will gladly travel hundreds of kilometres to sit under their teaching should ever they visit our nation. There are men whom I have travelled overseas to sit under their teaching. Jesus is in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. It's a teaching style. Ask a question, get an answer, finish your answer with another question. And how do you see it? The person answers, I see it this way. Gives reason for their gives reason for what it is that they've said. Perhaps cites the scripture. And that's the way I see it. How do you see it? Etc. Etc. Giving answers, asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I want to, I just want to stop and think about this. I've already made the point, but I'll point it out again. Remember, his mind is not stained nor dulled by sin. And when this human mind bends itself to the concentration on the word of God, I would suggest that Jesus was able to reach a level of concentration that is actually beyond you and I, or at least beyond you and I for the most of our time. 
very easy to get distracted. How often do you think to yourself, you know, I should read some scripture and pray about that. And as you walk from one room to the next with the intention of reading some scripture and praying about that, someone says, have you checked that you locked the car when we got home from the shops? And you walk out the door, you take your key with you, you look at the car, you press the button, you make sure the lights flash, you walk back in the door. And that thought that I should read the scripture and pray about that, (laughs) it's like you never had it. Your, your brain is like an echo chamber. You're moving on to the next domestic task that is somewhere around about you. Completely forgotten. Or you've opened the Bible. You're studying the scripture or someone's teaching you. And you're thinking about, what kind of eagle is that that's circling near the cloud just out there? And look at those birds nesting in the tree at the back corner of the churchyard. And... Did I forget to set the oven at 150 before we walked out the door? Etc., etc. Our minds are easily distracted and are dulled by sin. But when Jesus concentrates on the scriptures, this is a mind that is not stained by, dulled by, turned away by sin. So, where did he learn his scriptures, by the way? This is a boy growing up in a rural town, which even today people who've been to Israel tell me that Nazareth is, it's like the back end of nowhere. It's nothing, it's nothing spectacular. How did he know his scriptures so well? Well, remember the words of his mother Mary, my soul rejoices in God my saviour and on went her song. That was all scripture. She was lifting various portions of scripture and combining them into a song. That's what a person does when they are entirely familiar with scripture to the point that scripture has become a part of their everyday language. And so between the instruction that he would have received as a child from his mother, and don't be ashamed to say that. Don't imagine that Jesus was born with the knowledge of scriptures embedded in his brain and as soon as he opened his mouth, he was quoting Bible verses. As a child... He was taught scripture. His mind was perfectly apt or suited to remembering scripture because his mind was not stained by sin. But as a child, he must have been taught scripture. And so he knew scripture and he was able to converse with teachers who had spent, who knows, 20, 30, 40 years studying these things. And he was at, if you want to think of it, their level. Possibly he was even higher because it says that they're amazed Amazed at his understanding, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished, surprised. What's he doing here? What's going on? Now, there's some interesting play going on here in the words, some interesting interplay. And his mother said to him, Son, Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So what do we have here? Well, first of all, it's a rebuke. Mary, as his mother, feels that she has every right here to chide her son, to speak to him, to rebuke him, to tell him that she feels he has done wrongfully. She says something. Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father 
and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, in general terms, we could agree. The father of Jesus in terms of his raising as a child, the father of Jesus in terms of his life in the village of Nazareth would have been called Joseph. But look at how Jesus answers. Verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? First, let's stop. Why were you looking for me? What's implied there to ask that question in this situation? If you had a thought about this, it would not be hard for you to know where I am. Pretty amazing thing to say, but that's what he's saying. If you had have thought about this, why were you even looking? You should have come straight to the right place in the very first instance. Why were you looking for me? Second question. Did you not know that I must be in, now here, my father's house? Mary has just said to him, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus replies, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's a rebuke and a reminder going straight back to Mary. I don't know how this could have been put in its politest possible form, but something along the lines of let's let's try and um, let's try and stretch it out a bit politely. Mother, it is you who told me that Joseph is not my father. It is you who told me that you were overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. It is you who told me that the angel told you that I was to be called the Son of the Most High. Mother, I learnt these things from your lips. And here I am in the temple studying the scriptures. And you're acting surprised. You see the point? You see what he's saying to her? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Did you not know that it was necessary for me to be here? Possible translation, did you not know that I must be doing my father's business? At 12 years old, he knows who he is and he knows why he's in the world and he knows what it's about. I often think about that. At some point in his life, he must have connected things like Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53 to the punishments that the Romans were connecting out, were, were handing out. Executions, the Romans carried out the executions in a public place by a main road. And Jesus, at some point, and it must have been when he was very young, possibly even by the age of 12, saw a man die upon a cross for his crimes or because Rome chose to put him to death and realised this is the death that I have been sent to die. Pretty amazing thing. But remember, this is a 12-year-old whose mind is not dulled nor blunted by sin. 
I must be in my father's house or I must be about my father's business. I must. There's a necessity. I have to do these things. So Mary attempts to rebuke Jesus and Jesus in return rebukes Mary. It's polite. I'm not saying that he was at all rude. He hasn't committed a sin. But he has basically said to Mary and to Joseph, who was obviously listening, you guys know why I'm in the world and you actually know who I am. Why are you surprised that I'm here studying the scriptures? But verse 50 tells us, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They did not understand. I'm sure they understood the words. He was speaking in clear, well, he wasn't speaking English. Aramaic, probably. He was speaking clear Aramaic, the language with which they were familiar. They understood exactly the words that he was speaking, but in some ways they had forgotten all that had gone before. They had forgotten that the child was conceived by the power of God's Holy Spirit. They had forgotten that when they that the that the shepherds came because the angels had told them that the Saviour was born. It had slipped their mind when they took him to the temple that Simeon had spoken of his satisfaction in having seen God's Saviour. It had slipped their mind that Anna, the prophetess, was rejoicing and giving thanks to God and preaching to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem about this boy. It had slipped their mind in a way. Remember, it's only Jesus whose mind was not dulled by sin. Mary and Joseph, believing people, faithful people, holy people, justified in the sight of God people. But minds, unfortunately, like all of us, able to be distracted, able to be dulled, able to be turned aside from the truth. Now, I'm not saying they failed in faith, and I'm not saying that they are at this point in time believing lies, but what I'm saying is at this point in time, they failed to understand the importance of all the things that had happened so far in their life. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They didn't understand why he said that. What does he mean? I must be in my father's house. What does he mean? Why would you look for me anywhere else? Jesus knew what he meant. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, I believe we know what he meant. But they didn't. Verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. How does Luke know these things to write them down? You know, I've said to you many a time with regards to the scriptures, those who wrote the scriptures were not in a trance. They had not, they were not um, practicing automatic writing. They had not emptied their minds, put a pen to the paper and just seen what came out. How would Luke have known what had been treasured up in Mary's heart? You speak to Mary and you ask her, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about his childhood. 
Tell me about your life with him before he started his public ministry. What do you remember? Verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. So let's consider this Saviour who is truly man and truly God. Let's consider why this is important. Well, we read earlier from Psalm 49, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Sinners are in debt. Sinners are in debt. Sinners owe God. But it's a debt they can't pay. It's a, it's a debt beyond calculation. If, if, if we could be punished a million times over by the death penalty, we still couldn't pay the price of our sins. For God is a holy and righteous God. He cannot bear to look upon sin. He cannot bear to have sin come into his presence. We can't save ourselves and we never could. Yet it's God's intention that a man rules and reigns at his right hand. And it's God's intention that a man undone undoes the harm that man did. So we need a man. We must be saved by a man. In the book of Isaiah, God speaks of seeking for a man and none could be found. And so he himself put upon himself the helmet of salvation. He himself went went forth to war on behalf of his people. No man could save himself. Man must be saved by God. Who could pay the price of sin? Who has that which it takes? Just open again to Psalm 49. Verse 7. Psalm 49, verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Think of what's being said there. No man can ransom another. No man can give to God the price of his life. No man can make payment that satisfies God. No man can turn aside the wrath of God. No man can satisfy God's righteous demands. The ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Who can pay it? No man. It's a debt beyond the ability of any man that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can pay it. As I read that, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. Well, who can, who can arrange that? Though he die, yet shall he live. The one who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. But if God were to pay the debt, if God were to pay the debt, well, there you're looking at a different story, aren't you? For God is, if you wanted to speak in terms of value, of infinite value. His price cannot be calculated. No man can ransom another nor give to God the price of his life, but God could ransom a man. And remember, when God swore his covenant to Abram, now in a covenant swearing ceremony, a man walks between the midst of divided animals. And basically the the, uh, import of this is the man is saying, if I don't keep my word, let me become like the animals. 
But when God struck up covenant with Abraham, Abraham was put down on the ground to sleep and God himself passed between the midst of the animals. God took upon himself the burden of obedience at the cost of death. God can redeem a man. God can pay the price of sin. It is God who can bring a man to life from the dead. And so we have Jesus, truly God and truly man. That which was human was human, truly human. Jesus was not a strange hybrid. It wasn't he, he, his, his nature or his makeup was not humanity made divine, nor was his nature divinity made human. He added humanity to his divine nature. And his divine nature remains his divine nature. And his human nature remains truly human. So how does Jesus go on to perform the ministry that he performs? Well, in another place in scripture, he says, if I by the Holy Spirit, if I by the Holy Spirit cast out demons as a sinless man, a truly obedient, faithful man, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, he did the works of God. And so we have this person who is both truly divine and truly human, not a strange mixture or hybrid of both of them, but yet one person. Now you say, how can that be? Well, we're talking about a very similar thing that we're speaking to when we speak of Trinitarian doctrine, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one and one only God of one essence, of one being, yet three persons who are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all completely, totally, co-equally, co-eternally God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not one of them is less than truly God. Well, in a, in a slightly different way, but in a way that is also similar, we have Jesus, truly man, truly divine, or truly man and truly God, in the one perfect person. I'm going to read, we'll close with this, I'm going to read what's called the Chalcedonian formulation or the Creed of Chalcedon. It's an ancient church creed. It's the result of many years of controversy trying to understand these things and it's the result of dealing with false teaching. There, were teaching, there was teaching that Jesus was some other thing, a third thing, not truly a man, not truly God, some strange thing in between man and God. No, he is truly man and truly God. He has shared in flesh and blood like his brothers, like you and I. This is what makes him our perfect great high priest. He knows us. He understands us. In Psalm 103, we're told he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows. He has experienced this. When we turn to the Lord Jesus, we're not turning to someone who does not understand our troubles. Anyway, as I said, I'm just going to read the Creed of Chalcedon. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, 
teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Perfect in the Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body. Coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. Now, what does that mean? Coessential of the same essence as the Father. That which is God is God. Jesus shares the same essence as the Father. Consubstantial, the same substance that you and I share, this flesh and blood existence, consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, human, image bearer of the living God, except without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, the only begotten Son. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. So, his divinity is of the Godhead. His humanity has come from Mary. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, divinity and humanity. And concerning those two natures, we're told that they are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, truly God and truly man, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Truly God, truly man. You see, for our salvation, we need a true saviour. We need the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, truly human. For our salvation, we need to be redeemed at a price that is pleasing to God. And only God can please and satisfy God. What's the value of a fallen creature like you and I when it comes to trying to, as it were, purchase or redeem in the sight of God? Nothing whatsoever. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we read this um, strange little phrase that the Apostle Paul uses. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Think of that. Now, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and he's warning them in their upcoming ministry to be on guard and to be to be ready to fight for God's flock. And how does he speak of the value of God's flock? The flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, he must refer to God, obtained with his own blood. In his humanity, Jesus died upon the cross. In his sinless humanity, there was a union of that humanity and that divinity in such a way 
that God is willing to see the blood of Jesus as the blood of divinity and count it as the purchase price of his people. The man Jesus died upon the cross. In terms of divinity, the eternally begotten son, well, God cannot die. But the eternally begotten son had taken upon himself flesh without sin. And God owned that flesh as his own very self. And so God is willing to accept the blood that was shed by Jesus upon the cross as the blood of God himself. And so the price is paid and we are redeemed and the head of the serpent has been crushed and our sins have been washed away and we have been granted life through Jesus Christ our Lord through the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. A man died on the cross. An infant was born of the Virgin Mary. A boy went to the temple to study the scriptures. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this great salvation that is ours through, through the gift of your grace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Father, we pray that we would rejoice in your goodness and your grace and your mercy toward us and help us, Father, to love you all the more through that which you have given us in Christ our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.